before we get there, I ask that you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. In theory, you all should be a little bit more rested today, right? Extra hour of sleep last night? No. See, I know what you all do, right? You, you oh, I get an extra hour. You stay up an extra hour, and then uh, so it doesn't, it cancels it out, right? So, um, well, anyway, um, no excuses for falling asleep today, and that's it. Uh, I do not have the page number. I apologize for our, our Bibles there. We make available in the back. So if you're visiting with us and grabbed one of those Bibles, go to the front. There's an index, the book of Acts there. Go to the page number and then follow the numbers up till you get to cha- uh, chapter 17. And as always, if you do not have a Bible of your own, uh, I would love for you to take that home with you as a gift uh, to you and, and to use that. So um, Acts chapter 17, and I know Dave just prayed, but let me just pray again, uh, maybe just more for me. Um, but um, let's ask this Lord to bless the preaching of his word this morning. God, we thank you for these ancient words, these accounts. Um, God, it stood the test of time. This book of Acts that we continue to, to glean from, Lord, uh, this is our story. This is our heritage, um, God, and what a glorious uh, story it is. Thank you that you have chosen us uh, as your church to be the means by which you make Jesus known in this world. I pray, God, that we would be faithful, that we would learn from our brothers and sisters who've gone before us, that we'd learn from the book of Acts. Uh, God, we desire to carry the name of Jesus just as our, uh, our early brothers and sisters in, in the church did in the book of Acts. So um, instruct us today and encourage us and build us up. Um, God, uh, in your omniscience, you know the need of each and every person here. You know spiritually where each and every person is. So we just pray that you would take your truth as only you can and bring it to bear on each of our lives so we leave here better equipped to serve you, to represent you in this world. And for those here today, Lord, who, who haven't repented, where Paul goes at the end of this, God, who, uh, who haven't repented and bowed the knee to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God, we would love to have that conversation with them today, God. So I pray that you would do that work as well and that we'd see people come to Jesus the ministry here at Forest Hills. It's all about him. So we pray this as always for the sake of the glory of Jesus, his name, and for the sake of the kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 17, and pick up in verse 16, and if you remember uh, where John was uh, last week, um, uh, there'd been some persecution in Thessalonica and Berea, and so Paul ended up fleeing to Athens. Paul and Sil- or, uh, Silas and Timothy stay there a little bit longer, and then Paul uh, desires them to come and meet him in Athens, so that's where this picks up. Now, while Paul was, Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some were of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship... As unknown, this I proclaim to you, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. One of the takeaways I hope you come away from this passage this morning with is this. As we think about Paul here on Mars Hill, engaging with the leading intellectuals and philosophers of his day, want us to be reminded and encouraged that Christianity can compete with anything. It's easy sometimes in our world to get a little intimidated. Intimidated by the philosophies of the world, by, by, by science, by, by this, by the, the, the way they think, and, and think somehow Christianity kind of it, it takes second place to that. I can't compete, I can't compete. And I want to encourage you today as we watch Paul standing here that the the gospel of God, the truth of who God is, is greater than any worldly philosophy that's out there. And not only does Christianity have a place at the table, Christianity is the table, right? And that's what we see here in Acts 17. One of my favorite movies of all time, I still think the greatest sports movie ever, ever made, Hoosiers, right? I got an amen from Andrew. Hoosiers is a great movie, right? And, and for those of you who don't know what Hoosiers was about, this was back in the day before they had divisions in high school, you know, large school, small, class A, class B. And, and in the state of Indiana, I don't know what it was like in Michigan at the time, but in the state of Indiana, I don't remember when this was, a long time ago. And you look at their shorts, that's how you know it was a long time ago. Um, and, um, right, and, and, and it, they, they competed. And it didn't matter, large school or small school, you ended up in the state tournament and you're all thrown in there together. And, uh, you know, by way of reference, this would be like maybe schools from like the Upper Peninsula or places like Nuego or whatever, competing against Detroit, the biggest schools in Detroit for state titles. That's, that's kind of how it was in Indiana at the time. And so the story is a true story about this little school, uh, Hickory. And uh, they went, and they ended up making the state tournament. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie yet, I, it's your fault. I'm, I'm going to ruin it for you right here. But the movie's like 40 years old or whatever. So, uh, but they end up winning the state tournament. And, um, and it's a cool story. But one of the things in the picture there, they're looking at a basketball hoop. And um, when they walked into this arena, Coach Dale, he could kind of see it in the eyes of his players. Like, they're just kind of blown away. Looking around, this is the biggest place they'd ever played in. They had a little town, state, you know, basketball gym they played in there, and Hickory, and maybe a few hundred people, and this seated thousands. And you can see it in their eyes. This is a great scene where he gets out a tape measure, 
And uh, he says, I want you to measure the distance from the, from the basket to the foul line. And they measure it. And he says, I want you to measure the distance from the hoop uh, to, the, to the floor. And you know, they measure it. Of course, it's, it's 10 feet. And then he says to him, he says, I think that you will find the measurements of this court are identical to the one that you play on back in Hickory. And his point to them was this. You belong here, guys. Don't think you don't belong here. Don't think this is too big for you. You belong here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not think that the world around you is too big for you. Do not think of the Areopagus of our culture too great for Christianity. You belong. The truth you proclaim belongs and is greater and superior. We walk away encouraged by that, by Acts 17. So let's look here, right? It is, because it's natural to be intimidated in times, right? I spoke at a funeral Friday, and I was going back and forth whether or not to do it and decided to do it because we knew there'd be a lot of unsafe people there. And, uh, and it is. You walk up on stage holding the Bible in your hand, and you look out, and, and there's these fleeting moments of intimidation, like, my word, and there's people sitting there looking at you, and there was, there was one guy, you're sitting right about where Andrew was, you know, the whole time, and you're like... But then you're like, you know what? It's the gospel. It's going to let it off its leash. Let it do what it does, right? So it's natural to feel intimidated sometimes, but this is what we got. Let's track through Paul's story here, this narrative. Uh, first of all, Paul was provoked by the darkness and idolatry of Athens. While Paul was waiting, it says in verse 16, he saw the city was full of idols. One ancient historian, Pliny, he wrote this. The city of Rhodes has 73,000 statues in it, with no fewer residing in Athens. Other references by historians state that there was maybe a lower number, maybe 30,000. Either way, there was tens of thousands of idols in the city of Athens. So what you have here is, though Athens wasn't what it once was, it was still a glorious city. It was beautiful. Been to Athens, you know, even the old, you can still see enough of the old there. No, this was a beautiful city. The white and everything, and and as well as it, it was the intellectual and philosophical capital of the world. It was a glorious city in, in, in those ways, right? And yet what Paul perceived as he walked around was as glorious as this city was, as smart as this city was, it was spiritually bankrupt. And, and we, we know what this feels like. We look around, and I, I, I threw a picture up there. This is actually Las Vegas. And uh, years ago when, I, when we were traveling, and uh, we were going out to the West Coast to do some, some touring on the West Coast, and we came through Las Vegas, and we got there at night, and it was about this time of night, and I wonder, almost wonder if this picture was taken from the same perspective we had as we came up on the city, because I remember we came up, and it is absolutely beautiful. And you see the lights, it's kind of just, looks like an oasis in the middle of the desert, and you see the mountains kind of, and, um, and you wonder, man, that is absolutely beautiful. And then you get there, <laughs> and you're like, oh my word, this is awful. And you get two or three blocks off the strip there, and you see the spiritual bankruptcy. And that's why Paul, he's walking around Athens. And I'm sure Paul, some of you are like, wow, this is beautiful. But, but his heart was provoked within him because he saw the spiritual bankruptcy. Right? Again, this is our culture. We live in Babylon, and, and it can look so attractive and such sometimes. But our world, our friends, people we go to school with, the people we work with, are spiritually bankrupt. And we have to see that. Paul's spirit, as he sees that, is provoked within him. It means he's bothered. He's irritated. He's angry. That's what the terminology means here. Because he saw that these people were devoted to gods that Paul knew did not exist. And he understood the seriousness of it. 
Years ago, we were doing some work in our basement. It was before we finished the, the girls' bedroom down there, but the, the people who had lived there before us, our, our basement's kind of divided lengthwise, right down the middle. And you have the finished part and the unfinished part. And then in the back corner of the finished part, they put a wall up there and made a little study or something for the guy who lived there before us. And so they put some electrical outlets in and so on and some paneling. So we were doing some work down there. So we're taking the paneling off the wall, and there was an electrical outlet that faced the, uh, the finished side, the living area, and... Um, and he, he put an outlet right beside it facing the, that little bedroom area on the other side. And he connected those two electrical boxes together, those outlet boxes together. You know what he used? He used uh, the cord of a lamp to connect those together. And I, I took the panel off, and I saw it, and that cord, it was a brown cord, and it was black, and it was all melted, and all of the insulation around it was black. And for some reason, Rusty had come over. Rusty was doing some, and Rusty came down, and I showed it to him, and Rusty was angry. And if you know Rusty, Rusty's our resident electrician. Rusty does things the right way. Rusty was angry. And he said, he was, he's like, do you, do you realize? And I'm like, I do. He's like, your family could have died. I'm like, I know. He saw it. Was, he recognized the danger. That's what, that's what Paul feels when he looks around Greece, looks around Athens. Do you realize what they're chasing? And it's empty and it's dangerous. Sin is not cute. It's not fun. Culture of our world will kill people. It will cost them their souls. It bothered Paul, as it should have been, as it should have. John Stott writes this, The pain or anger which Paul felt in Athens was due to his, uh, due to his abhorrence of idolatry, which aroused within him deep stirrings of jealousy for the name of God, as he saw human beings so depraved as to be giving idols the honor and glory which were due to the one living and true God alone. Paul was also angry that people were worshiping idols instead of the true God. He was jealous for God. Their idols represented their hunger for the spiritual, right? So where we live in, people have a hunger for spiritual things. The people of Athens hungered for something beyond their everyday life. People have a desire for something deeper. Paul knew what the answer was, and it wasn't the idols of Athens. So I ask you this question just by way of a takeaway from this opening point here is this, are you disturbed and angered seeing people led astray? So the idolatry of our world, does it bother you to the point where you are compelled by desire to see people grasp the truth about God instead? Or have you become numb to it? You see the people you work with as being deceived, the people you live next to as being deceived, people you go to school with as being deceived, and you have a, a hunger and thirst to see them find the true things that they are looking for in their lives, Jesus. Right? Are you bothered the way Paul was bothered? He sees that he's bothered, so what does he do? Well, he reasons with them. He goes to the synagogue in the marketplace and ultimately ends up in the Areopagus. But he starts in the synagogue as is his practice. We've seen that now established throughout the book of Acts. Um, but then he expands the Agora, which is the marketplace, the, 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 the town square, the, the, the mall, right? Interesting, the reaction of the Jews, right? So far through the book of Acts, every time Paul's preached in the synagogue, we, we, get, we get Luke's record of the, the reaction, the response of the Jews. Uh, interesting, in Athens, we, we don't know how the Jews responded. That's not Luke's intent here. It's not his interest here. He's, he's, he's guiding us in a different direction. Um, another point of emphasis. So let's talk about what Paul does. He reasoned. It's an interesting word. It's a great word. It's significant because what this word implies is that Paul engaged them in respectful, thoughtful conversation. 
The word kind of means you know, thought, uh, proclamation that leaves room for discussion. Now here's why I like this word, because it comes right after the word that said Paul was angry. Paul was provoked. We can be angered by sin and adultery. And adultery, well that too. Uh, idolatry. We can be angered by sin and idolatry. But we do not carry that anger over into our interactions with the people who need to hear the truth of the gospel. That make sense? I can be angry with sin, but I don't want to direct that anger at the people who need to hear the message of the gospel. I'm not angry with them. It's possible to be angry with sin and angry with the culture, but conduct ourselves with the unsaved in a way that communicates that we love them, communicate truth to them. Let the anger motivate me to share the truth, but I'm not going to direct that anger at them. I learned this so from my brother, from John, uh, uh, Marco. I remember, especially back during COVID, uh, because we couldn't go to the weight rooms and things like that. So we worked out. It was kind of like, it felt like Rocky. We had like rocks and things in his garage, and we were just picking them up, and, you know. But, um, but, but what I love, John, what I learned from John, John's neighbors, it'd be like this hub. And there were people there who didn't agree. And John, and they, they knew where John stood, and John, and, and we just and we just engage in these guys in conversation. And they'd say little things, and I remember John, one of the guys, he was saying little things to poke a little bit. And, and John didn't go off on some rant about John Locke uh, or, or whatever. You know, just, you just engaged them. You listened and, and talked. They knew where we stood, and, and you had a thoughtful conversation, and, and you were saddened by, you know, like, oh, man, I just want them to know the truth. But I wasn't angry with them, able to engage, learn. Understand where they're coming from and then seek opportunities to give them truth, right? Where does he do this? He does it in the marketplace with those who happen to be there, right? The marketplace. He went where the people were at. Where are our marketplaces today, right? Where are our marketplaces? Go to where the people are at. That's part of the reason why I did this funeral on Friday. I knew there would be lost people. I didn't know. To be honest with you, it was a struggle for me. I'm like, oh, it's such a busy week. Like, I don't have time. But, like, Kathy was like, She's like, yeah, I get it. Here's the tension. She's like, there's going to be so many unsaved people there. I'm like, I'm thinking of Acts 17. I'm like, okay, God, I'll apply what I'm preaching. You know? I'm going to go because I know the people are there. And I know they're going to listen. Right? We go to the marketplaces. He does it day by day. Day by day, it says. This is the nature of evangelism. This is the nature of discipleship. It's a process. It's not a one-shot deal. Even for the great Apostle Paul, all of his intellect and ability to engage, even Paul didn't just show up and say, here's the gospel, and like multitudes come to Jesus. It didn't work that way. The great Apostle Paul had to invest day after day after day after day in the process of evangelism and discipleship. Sometimes I've talked to missionaries before. Uh, I'm sure Andrew and Lee have never felt this, but I've talked to missionaries before. So they, they feel this pressure like, man, if we don't report that, like, 50 people came to Jesus in the past three months. Like, somehow we're a failure, right? There's, there's pressure. It's not that way. Dan and I were talking about Don Marshall. France is a really hard place to share the gospel. And if our metric for how effective Don Marshall has been in France over the years is like the multitudes, the hundreds of people who come to Jesus through his ministry, then, you know, no, man, it's, it's engaging. Day after day, it's a process. It's an investment, and we're so American a lot, right? We want the quick and easy fix, the quick and easy. What can I do? Tell me what will work. You know, in all honesty, sometimes I don't mean this as a criticism necessarily-ish. <laughs> I think sometimes the reason why we, get a, we, we can get a ton of people to sign up to help at base camp. That's an awesome thing. It's good. That's great. I'm not complaining about it. Awesome. Why? That's one week. But then we say, hey, we need you to sign up for this. 
to, 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 to be involved in something over the course of a long time, uh, that's a lot harder. Oh, I don't do that. That involves, like, really? I have to commit to something? I have to commit to meeting with someone once a week to disciple? <sighs> so hard. It's not as flashy. Listen, that's what it takes, though. That's what it takes. You've got to be in it. Long, day after day after day after day after day. That's what Paul did. So Paul did. He engages them. There's two groups mentioned here who he engages, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And what I wish we had time for, this is more like the realm of like a classroom. What I wish we had time for, if, if you unpack what the Epicureans and Stoics, but let, let me just read this and then I'll, I'll, I'll make my point. The Epicureans, they were indifferent to the gods. Uh, kind of like agnostics. They believe they exist, but they're completely indifferent, detached from them. One of their sayings was this, nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, good can be attained, evil can be endured. And they were critical of localizing the gods in physical temples and meeting their needs. Then you had the Stoics, they were the pantheists. They argued for the unity of humanity and kinship with the divine. They believed that all of humanity originated from one source. And that's just, that's very oversimplified of what they Believed. But I, I at least give you those kind of brief definitions because I want you to, I, if you're thinking, I want you to, to notice something here. Um, P- Paul's message that comes as this chapter unfolds is masterful in the sense that he engages these two groups of people. And when you read his message in light of some of the things they believed, you see Paul playing this highly skillful game of connecting with them. The Epicureans, they had a problem with thinking God could be localized to temples. Does that sound familiar? It comes out in Paul's sermon. Paul's building a bridge. He's like, ah, I get you. You're kind of barking up the wrong tree, but I identify with that sense, right? The Stoics, everyone descended from one common. God, Paul, right? I mean, he put this in his sermon. God is, we're all from Adam. We're all descended. Yes. So he builds these bridges and he identifies with them, and then he takes them beyond that and give them the truth behind why they think and feel what they're feeling. It's fab. Paul is masterful at this throughout here. He builds bridges, and yet he makes it very clear where he stands and directs them towards God. So these are the two people that he, two groups that he mainly interacts with here um, in the Agora. What's their response to him? They call him a babbler. This is babbler saying. This is intellectual snobbery. They're looking down on Paul. This word babbler, it, it means a scavenger, a seed picker. Basically refers to birds, a pigeon. Going around, it picks up something here, picks up something here, picks up something here. Like that, that's basically what they're calling Paul. And like he's there giving us all this, these seeds that he's picked up. It is not a flattering term. This is a good reminder to us as well. Again, considering this is the great apostle Paul, the best apologist proclaimers of the gospel of all time, and even Paul, this is the response to the message of God and the gospel, right? So again, for those of us who get upset, like, oh no, someone rejected me. They didn't accept Jesus when I presented the gospel. Yeah, get used to it, right? Paul dealt with the same thing. They called him a babbler, a seed picker. Um, But that said, he had said just enough where they're curious to hear more. Because as Luke says, they spend their time and nothing except telling or hearing something new. Which I love, I don't know if, you, if you're really paying attention, Luke actually gets a little literary jab in here because he says they're actually the ones who would go pick every day looking for something new. Um, Paul, I think, he's, I think Luke's being a little sarcastic here, to be honest with you. But, uh, but they've heard just enough, they're curious, 
They bring him to the Areopagus. So now he testifies there. So now he's made it. Now he's moved from the synagogue, the marketplace, um, from the Jews, the common people, the philosophers, now to the academics. And you see Paul's ability here to contextualize the gospel in all of those settings. He moves to the Areopagus. They take hold of him. They bring him there. This was not, by the way, an arrest. Um, I don't, there's nothing in the text that indicates this was violent. This, this was not an arrest. I think this was a legitimate, we want to hear new things. We want to hear this. And they bring him to the Areopagus. If anything, it very well could have been a type of a hearing. Um, the introduction of new deities, which they question here. Is this the introduction of a new deity? The introduction of a, a new deity into the uh, Athenian pantheon required government approval. So it could be that, in a sense. They want to hear more. It's like, should we introduce this god? It also could be why Paul references back to this idol he saw, to the unknown god. Paul, in a way, is saying, no, this isn't new. It's proclaiming to you something that you don't know about now, right? It's probably more likely what is going on here. In any, in any sense, he, he's dealing with arguably the most educated and culturally advanced audience that he had faced or probably would ever faced here, here in Athens. And here, again, is where we see that Christianity can go face-to-face with anything. As we look at Paul now, bringing the truth of the gospel, the Areopagus of Athens. How is he able to do this? Well, as he starts his speech here in verse 23, we understand, first of all, Paul had looked around and he learned. He had assessed. I, as I walked around, he says, I perceive this. This is a model for us. Do your homework Learn, learn about what makes your neighbors tick. Why do your people, your, your friends, your, why do they have negative views of the gospel? Why do they believe what they believe? Seek to understand them. Seek to, 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 to assess whether, ask questions, learn about them. That's not compromising the gospel. That's just being smart. Learn so that as you see where they're at and what their hindrances are and what their hiccups are, that you can speak truth more intelligently into their lives. That's what Paul uh, does there. He looks around. He sees these people as being very religious People groping for God. And by the way, this is, I, I don't think this is either a positive or a negative statement Paul is making here. He's simply making an observation, a correct observation. He sees in Athens a world of people who are groping for God, who are seeking for something more. At the end of the day, that's what their idolatry was. They were seeking for something more. Right? The news this past week has been the death of Matthew Perry, right? Uh, uh, fame of, of friends fame. And it's interesting, you're just reading some things that Matthew Perry himself had written in his biography and, and some other interviews. This was in the New York Times as um, he was reflecting on his life, his own life years ago. He wrote this, there was steam coming out of my ears. I wanted to be famous so badly, Perry said in a 2002 interview with the New York Times. You want the attention. You want the bucks. You want the best seat in the restaurant. I didn't think what the repercussions would be. When stardom happens, it's kind of like Disneyland for a while. For me, it lasted about eight months, this feeling of I've made it. I'm thrilled. There's no problems in the world. And then you realize it doesn't accomplish anything, certainly not filling any holes in your life. And in his book, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, uh, Perry writes this, Nobody wanted to be famous more than me. I was convinced it was the answer. I was 25, it was the second year of Friends, and eight months into it, I realized the American dream is not making me happy. It's not filling the holes in my life. I couldn't get enough attention. Fame does not do what you think it's going to do. It was all a trick. People searching. Matthew Perry, searching. 
people of Athens searching. And they find emptiness. The world is groping for something more. You have the truth. I like how Paul puts it here. He calls it, I I perceived your objects of worship. I love it that he calls them the objects of worship. He, he, He goes very careful in that terminology, I think. He doesn't use the word deities. He's steering away from anything that would cause him to believe they're anything more than objects. They're empty objects. I'd suggest to you today that objects, for us, even in Christianity, objects have been elevated and deified in our culture and in our Christianity, much like they were then. Paul goes after these objects of worship, using this statue to the unknown God as a jumping off point. I don't believe that Paul is equating their unknown God to the true God. He's simply using it as a bridge to discuss the true God. He's not saying, Luke's not saying that God accepted their worship of him as unknown, right? That's why Paul gets specific in his message. That's why Paul calls them to repentance. It's not enough just that you, wish, that you worship in ignorance. No, you have to repent. Call on the name of Jesus, right? Paul's simply establishing a common ground and a launching point here. Paul is about to take their polytheism and make it into a confrontation with monotheism in a reasonable and gentle manner. So what does he do? Well, I'll just run through this real quick, but Paul just goes back to the basics, and he introduces them to who God is. He establishes the fact of God. So here's the interesting thing. One of the, if you have time later, contrast this message with the other messages and sermons you read earlier in the book of Acts. It's a very different message, Right? Paul has to approach this a different way. So far in Acts, when he's preached, he's basically dealing with people who share a worldview of at least a monotheistic God. And so most of it, I think, he starts right away with emphasizing Jesus and the prophets and the cross. He doesn't do that here. I'm not saying he doesn't get there eventually, but Paul understands something. He has to go back. This funeral I preached that Friday, I understand. I'm like, oh, there's probably a lot of people here who don't even understand what I'm talking about. John mentioned this last week. I don't remember the context, John, but you said you're talking to someone in brought up God, and some kid said, God, like, what's, what's that? What's God? Right? Paul understood that here in Athens. These people didn't share that worldview. So he has to go back to creation. And let's start at the foundation, lay the foundations of who God is. So he talks about God is uh, the creator. This is crucial, a crucial truth. It's a starting point. There's one true God. You have to establish this fact of the creator because that that implies uh, accountability. It implies that I'm not the one who makes the rules. If I have a creator, he makes the rules that I have to answer to, right? So he establishes God as the creator. He says that God um, cannot be, uh, I actually skipped one on there, so sorry. Uh, The next point I have is God cannot be contained in temples made by human hands, Right? Here he destroys all of the Greek gods who reside in the temple of Athens. But he does it without saying, all your gods who live in temples stink. He doesn't say that. He just says the true God doesn't need temples. He just presents who God is. I love that. Masterclass here being put on by Paul, right? He doesn't live in temples made by human hands. God doesn't need, um, God doesn't need anything from human hands. He doesn't need sacrifices or other services rendered to the gods. I mean, back then, their false gods had to carry them through the cities in parades. Can you imagine that? Like, oh, let's have a parade celebrating this god. I will pick him up and put him in the cart, and let's carry the god through the streets to worship him. God doesn't need that. God doesn't need paintings or images made of him. God doesn't need to be bathed. They had to clean their gods. 
Right? Can you imagine that? Like the God I worship, we need to pull him down for a little bit so we can go wipe the pigeon dew off of him. Right? I mean, crazy. I was like, this is what you're worshiping. My God doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need these things. He's establishing these truths. God alone sovereignly rules. We control nothing. At this time, the gods were associated with different locations and peoples, right? Paul establishes the truth here that God works across the nations and ethnic boundaries, and this directly undermines the polytheism of the day. He doesn't attack polytheism necessarily. He just spates who God is and allows that to do its work. God made people with purpose that they should seek God. God made people with a purpose that they should seek God. This is man's purpose. It's not pleasure. It's not escape. Physical existence is about knowing and fearing God. Paul says, this is your purpose, and perhaps you will understand this, and you will feel your way toward him. You will look for him. Some of you have heard me talk about my daughter Hannah. She had a stuffed animal, Chewy, a little stuffed teddy bear. I bought her when she was two days old. I brought it home from Babies R Us, and Kathy's like, oh, my word, stop buying things. You're such a dad, right? And uh, I bring her Chewy, and Chewy became her favorite thing. Chewy is with her at Cedarville, and she still sleeps with Chewy. But it got the name Chewy because she'd like chew on its tail. Like the, the bear has no tail anymore. I don't know where it went, but it, it's gone. And you know when babies suck on something a lot, and, and it, oh, like it has this, like they smell. And like we could smell Chewy coming. You know, we knew Hannah was coming because you're like, I smell Chewy. Hannah must be coming, you know. Um, but I would mess with Hannah and Chewy. I, I, like Hannah would be sleeping at night. I'm not kidding. I could pull Chewy away from Hannah. She's dead asleep. She's been asleep for two hours. And she'd go. She wouldn't even open her eyes. She's like groping around. Look at my, my hypothesis is she couldn't smell him anymore. <laughs> She'd grope around, look for Chewy, right? Searching for God. Now, the construction of the language here, though, is this not a guarantee that you'll find him. That is predicated, as the sermon goes on, that is predicated upon repentance. Because you're groping for God, because you worship some unknown God, you will not find him unless you are willing to repent. And that is the key that this all turns on. If, if you never repent, all you're doing is a term I've heard from a couple of years is man looking. <laughs> man looking means you went down and looked for something, you didn't find it. And then the wife walks down and she sees it right away. All the wives are going, man, I don't even know what that is. It's like his son, Zach. Like, Zach lost three sweat. I'm sorry, buddy. I'll throw you under the bus here. He, he lost three sweatshirts at school like last year. Like, Zach, did you look in the lost and found? I did. Zach, did you look in the lost and found? I was like, three sweatshirts. I looked in the lost and found. I just went on for like three or four weeks. Finally, one of these days, I'm like, I'm going to go look in the lost and found. I walk up to the second level of North Point where their lost and found is. I'm, I'm, I'm as far away as I'm from Matt, and there's the pile of lost and found. I'm this far away, and I stop, and I go, the sweatshirt was right on top of the pile. I didn't even have to move anything. You know, I'm like, Zach, but, right, that's, that's, Paul's saying, hey, so, some of you look, and I can find them. Looking, groping, 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 look, look, it's predicated on repentance. You are made to know God. God's not far. He's right there. But you've got to be willing to repent. And he says, lastly, God is the source that all of life is completely dependent on. This is such an important point for him to make. For this reason, James Dunn captures it well. He says, human beings understand the nature and identity of the human race only when they understand its fundamental dependence upon God with the corollary that such an understanding calls for appropriate worship. 
repentance response. This is why Paul paints a picture of who God is, to inspire in them repentance. And that's what Paul calls for. He calls for repentance. That's where it all turns. And this is key. He builds bridges. And he speaks to them in a way that's respectful and kind. He dialogues with them. But I get so sick of us in Christianity leaving it. We must dialogue with the world. Yes, we must dialogue. But if we stop short of absolute truth and the call for repentance, we have done a disservice to them, more so sending them to hell than we are bringing them to God. And so we have to get to this point as well. And then we see that Paul receives a varied response. Some people do respond. Some mock. And some say, I'll wait for later. And that's a pretty realistic view of how it goes. Paul didn't fail, by the way. People came to Christ. Dionysius the Areopagate, there's, there's, there's statements in church history, many think it's the same guy, became a, a bishop in the area of Corinth, uh, went on to be a church leader. Uh, there were successes here. This woman, we see again, women, the role that women are playing in the founding of the early church. Significant people come to Christ. That's the nature of it sometimes. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. We're going to prepare our hearts for communion. I put some things by way of application, knowing with communion and such, but I wouldn't have time to delve into all of these. But just as they come, I let me summarize. Uh, again, Paul was able to fully engage the culture in the intellectual capital of the world, Athens. Christianity can compete, right? Um, it's possible to be angry with the culture, yet still engage in a thoughtful, respectful way. Again, don't let your anger come through. Don't direct your anger at people. Now, again, I say that saying don't swing the other way either and be so accommodating that we never speak truth. Navigate it like Paul did. Focus on who God is and let that do the work. Again, I've used this as an illustration. People come and say, what do you think of LGBTQ? If they will allow you, the response is, I could answer that question, but can I go back and actually tell you the bigger story of my faith and of the story of Scripture? Because once I answer that question, I'm probably ending any opportunity to converse with them. But if I can tell them the whole story of Scripture, I at least can give them a picture of God and who Jesus is. And then we'll get to that. But, but right, that's what Paul does here. Tell them the story of God. Use common points of contact. Contextualize. Go to the marketplace. Go find. John Stott writes, the equivalent of the, agoria, of the agora will vary in different parts of the world. It may be a park, city square, a street corner, a shopping mall, or marketplace, a pub, a neighborhood bar, a cafe, a discotheque, or student cafeteria, wherever people meet when they are at leisure. I'd like to see some of you at a discotheque. That would be funny. But Paul had a deep conviction, by the way, too, that the pagan world can be reached. Don't give up. Brian and I were talking this week, and we are just, uh, Kim, our phone guy, Kim is an older gentleman now. Years and years and years, Brian never gave up on Kim. Kim is a follower of Jesus Christ now. Right? Don't give up. Pagans can be reached. Be wise in your sharing of the gospel. And for those of you who are chasing idols and thinking that you will never have to answer to God, stop chasing idols. They will not give you what you need. 